excited about that. But John chapter 17, verse 20 says, My prayer is not for them alone. And Jesus is talking about his disciples. And, and really at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, is articulating really this vision that he has for what it looks like to, to live out the kingdom of God and like why he is dying on the cross and what his whole earthly ministry was about and what is, what is the point of all this. So he's striving to articulate uh, really kind of the manifesto to the church of what he's hoping to see happen in and through what he's doing there on the earth. And so he's talking about his disciples. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, his disciples that were with him. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. You know, that's us. That's the church. For 2,000 years, following after this rabbi from Galilee who went around and proclaimed the kingdom of God is here. And how it has transformed our lives as a result. But, but that we believe in Jesus. That you don't believe in me, Nate Banky, or you don't believe in you know, your local pastor or this, you know, whatever famous preacher or missionary or minister that, you know, you've been impacted by, you know, we all have a part to play, but you're believing in Jesus and neither we're helping or hurting in that progression, but it's in his message, in his word that we believe even to this day. And so he says that all of them may be one father. Jesus just talking as a prayer to his heavenly father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. And so at the center of this reality, at the center of this prayer, this manifesto to what he's praying would happen in the world as a result of his work on the earth, is this idea that the only way that he can articulate what he's talking about, trying to accomplish, is by using the relationship that Jesus has with his father as an archetype, as a, as, a, as a way of understanding the type of relationship that we're supposed to have with God. And if you understand the idea of the Trinity, which if you say you understand it, maybe you don't really understand it, but, but in the sense of like, if you comprehend what Jesus is saying, that's a profound, profound statement. That he's saying this relationship that you and I have, this is what I want them to have. That, that only the Trinity could be the archetype of the type of intimacy and connection and, and dependence and reliance and joy in that kind of relationship that Jesus is saying, I'm wanting them to have what we have. But may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, but that they all might be one. That, the, that we are supposed to express through that relationship with our God, this Trinitarian type relationship with each other. At the center of reality is this idea of a creative God, a creative force, a creative being who chose to create in all the diversity and all of the expanse of reality that at the center of it is this relational God. And he invites us into relationship with him, that the center of reality is relationship. And that is a profound idea that we talk sometimes, you know, you go into your evolutionary class, it's like, oh, well, we're relational because it's survival of the instinct, you know, whatever tribal benefit. Sure, but why is it that it's chaos outside of relationship and there's this beauty inside of relationship? What is it that that reality is even getting 
sort of closer to getting close to something more true than just that, it, that it's beneficial, makes me feel good, I don't feel so lonely. Like, what is it that's something deeper inside of me that cries out, that says there is this reality that I am tethering to when I start to connect with the people around me or with the divine, that's something more profound. Because at the center of our faith is this idea of this creative God that has created us in results and has invited us into this, as the early Christians called the, the divine dance of God, that Jesus' relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit, dancing in this perfect unity in their diversity. And he invites us into that. I was, I was uh, reading this uh, Wall Street Journal article um, here a couple weeks ago, and the Saturday essay that they came out with was looking at this, this study. It's the longest-running psychology study in history. And it's, it's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. But in it, they were talking about how they have, they have been doing this, this research for 85 years. They took these, used to be called the Harvard Men's Business Study. They took these men after World War II. They started following them, and they just started doing all kinds of just constantly doing medical checkups and evaluations of their life and, and research on like their success and their backgrounds and their factors that caused those things. And they were trying to get to this question like what causes really at the end of the day health and happiness? That was really kind of what they were trying to get at. It's like, okay, we, the American dream. Like what causes that? And they just were trying to like follow these people and seeing like what was the trajectory of their life, what influenced their life, what created that in their life. And as college students, you guys are at this beginning point. You're at the starting point to a trajectory in your life where, yeah, hey, what does fulfillment look like? What does that look like? You know, you guys as college students at least have a base level of motivation to say, hey, I want something more for my life than just to like let it happen. I'm striving for something. But what are you striving for? And what are you longing to see happen in your life? And so they're studying, they're looking at these, these people and they're saying, okay, what causes health and happiness in someone's life? And it says this, in the 85 years and counting, the Harvard Study of Adults Development has found that personal connections are the most important factor in long-term health and happiness. So what makes you happy and healthy is how deep, how intimate, how true, how authentic your relationships are. In fact, at one point in the article, they said it's significant enough that if we had to boil the whole study, thousands upon thousands of man hours, hundreds of people now in the study that they've included and added into this, you know, the, the original uh, people they put in the study, you know, they added women, they added other people into the dynamic, but then, you know, they're kind of at the end of their life, so they started adding their grandchildren, you know, their children, they're kind of seeing generational effects and all this kind of stuff, all of this research, they said this is significant enough that if we had to boil it all down, it would be that good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. That the center of who you are is a relational being. In fact, they did kind of thought experiments that if you spent an hour a week with somebody, you would, you would, after 40 years, kind of from the point you're at right now to the point when you're starting to kind of get towards the end of your like career life, if you spent about an hour a week with a person or or with somebody a week just relationally, that up add up to something like 87 days in 40 years. And you might think, like, well, that's not, that's not horrible, right? Except that they found that 
that the average American in recent past uses about 11 hours a day on their screens. And I understand, like, of course, you know, they're, they're trying to be a little dramatic. Of course, some of that just is, you have to do that with school and work and all that kind of, but a lot of it is what you're looking to. You're looking for that dopamine trigger. You're looking for that short-term effect and that swipe benefit, you know, the like tab. You're looking for that reaction <laughs> that, that gives you, <laughs> but, 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 I'm old. So, so, so you're looking for that, you're looking for that benefit, but they're fine, like that, that is a short-term benefit for us at the cost oftentimes of a long-term reward. I think it's interesting in our world right now, from kind of the point I was in college to where you guys are at right now, there's, there's been sort of this, this progression where right before COVID hit, I remember the university faculty talking with the faith leaders on our campus saying, we're actually really, really concerned because we've never seen more anxiety, more depression, more fear in a generation in all the history of universities around the country. But CSU is no exception. We're seeing it at record levels. We've never seen a generation since we started university, since we started this university. They're using words like pandemic before anybody ever heard of the word COVID. And and what they were dealing with was, where does all this anxiety come from? And, you know, I think it's interesting in our culture right now as we are wrestling with, like, what, what gives, what's meaning? What's, what gives me joy? What gives me purpose? I was talking with a student on the plaza today just walking by, and, and I, you know, I would never get this, even a few years ago, but it's just normal now. I was talking to him, and somehow we got to that conversation point. And I was like, you know, what, what gives you meaning? Carrie was with me. We were talking with him, and he's, he's like, there is no purpose. There is no meaning. You know, I mean, I can make my own. Whatever, I guess, makes me happy, I guess, is it. But, you know, he's just kind of getting to that point. Like, there is no purpose. Like, seriously, you hear the words coming out of your mouth. But, but without God, there is none. There is no meaning, purpose, value in our lives. And so, and so because this generation is wrestling with, like, honestly, sometimes we are the worst, you know, from... From where I'm kind of standing to where you guys are at, we have been the worst at creating deep, meaningful, purposeful relationships at a time when our culture is most asking, what is purpose? What is meaning? And it's no wonder that we are struggling because as we ask the deepest questions of our life, we're the worst at knowing how to answer it of any of our predecessors. So what does it look like to have meaningful, authentic relationships? What does it look like as we walk into this semester to, to pursue after that thing within us that God put in us as he made us in his image to express in some ways that divine act within us as we learn to lean on each other and learn to draw near to him together. When Jesus is praying in John 17, may they be one as we are one, may they be in us as I am in you. What does that look like to live that out? And so... So Jesus uses the archetype of the Trinity to describe what he's calling us to be to each other. And, and I think about, when I'm thinking about like community, I think about uh, Winky Prattney's, this, this old revivalist preacher. And he wrote some great books. We love them. And so he, he kind of makes this comment about, he calls them the four C's of community. You guys may have heard us talk about them before. But, but the four C's of community is that community to be authentic, to be meaningful, needs to be calm, have common understanding, 
It needs to have common unselfishness. It needs to be constantly forgiving one another. And there needs to be a sense of commitment. So I want to run just through those a little bit. So let's talk about common understanding. What, is, what do you mean by that? I was, I was trying to find a different quote because if you've been around me long enough, you've heard me use this one. But honestly, all the books I've ever read, C.S. Lewis and The Four Loves just nails this idea so profoundly, so deeply, that I've just never been able to kind of get away from this quote of his. But he says, The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about truth. I only want a friend. He says, no friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, might. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes and white mites. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And so what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at is the idea that friendship is always about something more than the friendship, right? Like there's always some, and this word has all kinds of negative connotations, I know, but like there's always some agenda to it. There's always something external to it. But if you understand what I'm getting at, it's just the idea that there is always something external to the idea of our, us, I want a friend. There's something more that has to bind you. Like, hey, Maybe we're like coworkers, or maybe we're, maybe we're going through the same major, and so we just have the same classes. And so we're going through, you know, we've done some study groups together, and we're kind of leaning on each other throughout college, kind of getting through our major. Maybe that's the thing that binds you. You know, if it's just convenience, connections through convenience, then that friendship, though, the problem is, is only as deep as the thing that binds you. And so that friendship of convenience is just as deep as that convenience goes. Once the convenience is gone, the friendship is gone. That thing that's like, hey, yeah, that classmates that we're going through that major together, that might be a little bit deeper. But, but the deeper the thing is uh, that connects you, the more true that relationship becomes, the closer it can get to that kind of Trinity-type relationship. And so, and so here we see, like, I think about, like, soldiers. I've never been a soldier, but I get the metaphor. They always talk about, like, in the foxhole, when you're looking at the guy in the foxhole next to you and you say, the deepest thing to who I am right now is, is a soldier trying to survive the day. And you say to the other guy, like, hey, if you've got my back, I've got yours. Maybe we could survive today. There's a sense of connection and bond that comes as they talk about kind of that bond of brotherhood that can come in that foxhole. But it's also why soldiers talk about when they go home, that deep intimate friendship they built oftentimes is lost unless they have, they have to fight to reforge it because the thing that bound them is no longer there, they're no longer in war. So they lose it. The idea is if we're talking about an authentic, true God who made you, then the thing that is most true about you can only be truly found in Him. And when we find who we are in Him, that can bind us. It doesn't force us. We have to then fight for that connection, but we have the potential. They have the ability to find a deeper sense of authentic, meaningful connection. So much so that Jesus said, may they be one even as a Trinity. Because at the center of who we are is that Trinity relationship. That we find this depth, this infinite, divine potential of connection with each other as a result. Christ calls us to each other. But we have to learn how to reciprocate not just be a recipient. What do I mean by that? I mean, some of you guys, some of you guys 
uh, have a small group leader who's pursuing you, do you ever reciprocate? Or do you just respond to it? Well, I remember, I remember years ago, I had the, the training I had when I was a student or going through stuff. They'd always say, like, just ask somebody lots of questions about them. Because eventually, they'll turn it back and ask you questions. And you know what? I've had my staff constantly come to me these years and say, it doesn't work, Nate. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't work? They're like, I sat there for two hours over lunch. I asked that guy a million questions. I wanted to get to know him. It was great. But it was either me asking another question or sitting there awkwardly in silence. Because we don't know how to reciprocate relationship. We don't know how to pursue back the relationships that are pursuing us. Is it no wonder that we don't know how to have, pursue a God who has pursued us? We're just, God, I'm here. Maybe I felt a little bit of your pursuits. Maybe I know a little theology. I know you came as a human to be near to humanity. I, I sense that. I gather that. I get that pursuit. I appreciate that. I'm here. I appreciate that pursuit. I'll respond to that pursuit. But I won't reciprocate. I'm not going to pursue back. Because that would be out of my comfort zone. But we pursue back. We begin to engage back. We begin to press back into relationship with each other and in relationship with God. We begin to pursue time. We begin to sacrifice time. We begin to spend time and energy to in response. And that, and that relationship shifts from just a one-sided, pursuit-driven, really non-relationship into an authentic, meaningful connection with another person. But to have a true relationship that requires reciprocation. You know, girls, I'm like old school right here. Guys, pursue the girl. But if it's only the guy pursuing and you never give anything back, the guy is going to give up, right? You know, it's like, like you got to like respond back. Like there is this, there is, every relationship has this reciprocation that happens. All right, let's move on. Uh, constant forgiveness. So the girls are like, I'll pursue the guy. Okay, that's fine. All right. Constant forgiveness requires confession. Constant forgiveness requires confession. Constant forgiveness. You know, I, I was reading this book called Discipling, Building a Discipling Culture. It's by this guy named Mike Breen. And they did all this research kind of looking at what causes Christians, uh, what are attributes of Christians' lives who are really growing in their faith. And they found that there was all these attributes in Christians' lives who were consistently growing common traits amongst them. Um, but one of them they found was that they were meaningfully vulnerable with other, some other people in their life, really authentically vulnerable. Uh, and they expressed confession even. They were, just, they were just this, like, this is me. And, and, that, and that vulnerability wasn't just one of the common traits amongst Christians that were growing. They said it was strange. It was actually this trait that ev almost everything else was built on. If that wasn't there, they didn't have authentic relationships because they weren't being real. They didn't have the ability to honor because nobody really knew them. There was this sense of once you got vulnerability, once you were willing to like be authentic and confess one to another, as the Bible would say, then there was this openness to one another that began to grow. And so I remember, I remember this guy, Robinson, who's friend of mine, he's the director of Chi Alpha over at Boston University, and he's an immigrant from India, and he talked about, like, came into Chi Alpha down in Texas, and he said, Nate, 
I got into your guys' Chi Alpha. I know you guys talk about honor a lot. It's good, it's really good. Um, but I wasn't, that wasn't too strange to me. I grew up in a culture that's kind of an honor-shame culture. I was used to people kind of articulating honor around me. It wasn't strange. He said what was strange was it's an honor-shame, so you hide the shame for the sake of the honor. He said, I went into Chi Alpha and the leaders were being vulnerable about their limps, about their wounds, about their shortcomings, about their failings. And he said, the ability to be honoring in the midst of honesty was something so revolutionary it would forever change his understanding of God as a result of his relationship with God as a result. Because we can be honoring and not honest, and sometimes we can be honest but not honoring, but when we learn to do both, there is this power, there is this idea of how we learn to lean into each other. I think about you know, Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his death, right? Here he is. He's like, God, I, I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. In fact, there's these concepts in the Gospels. We, we sometimes, in an apologetical argument, you know that they're probably true if they're embarrassing. It's called the embarrassment principle. If it was embarrassing to the writers, but they still wrote it, it was just, why would they write it? Because it happened. You know, and here's here's these disciples, the great Jesus, and he is and he is not bold and passionate about his death. He's scared. He's wrestling. But he just says, God, I need you. I need I can't do this alone. But do we lean into each other? Are we people who are authentic, confessing, genuine? Are we being real with our small group? Are we being real with our friends? Are we being real with those people? I know in and in college, guys. I had a lot of community, but who do you give a voice to makes a huge impact on who you will become. So I had a lot of friends who were not living the way I knew I wanted to live. And I had these Christian friends that were like, I want to live like they are, and we're never perfect and we're wrestling through it. But I gave them a voice in my life, and my life went a trajectory that theirs, I will say, became more of a prodigal story as a result. But because who you give your voice to will become who you become like. All right. Comment on selfishness, number three. Comment on selfishness. We say it this way, love unselfishly chooses for the highest good of another. Love unselfishly chooses for the highest good of another. When I say, like, you know, I can tell guys, like, dude, I love you. And it's not this, like, awkward, romantic, because, you know, our modern culture doesn't know how to delineate anything other than phileo love from anything. And they're like, dude, that's kind of, you know, I'm not into that. It's like, like, what is that? It's like, I can say I love you. Why? Because, because what I am saying is I am choosing, even if I need to sacrifice for it, I am choosing to prioritize you and what you need over my own desires. And if those two things come in conflict, my temperaments, my desires, and your needs, I'm going to choose your needs. That I can unselfishly choose the highest good of another, that I'm going to say, I love you, man, because that is a statement of declaration, not of feeling, although feelings often are part of that, often reciprocate from that, but it's a declaration of, this is how I choose to be with you. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love God, second is love your neighbor. Love is more than just a feeling, although feelings should be part of it, but it is a choice that we choose. And one of the ways that we know what we love is what do we sacrifice for? What are we willing to sacrifice for? You know, some of you guys, 
you know, when it comes to this, this is where we get in trouble with relationships because we think relationships are all about like, does it fill me? Does it edify me? Good for me. And all sac all relationships require meaningful sense of sacrifice to get to that place of authentic. You know, I was telling the guys at Salt, like one of the worst things that many of you may have been told in your life is that you're an introvert. <laughs> because, and I don't, you know, I've done all the tests over the years, all the psychology tests. I, I am an introvert. Every, every test says it, that's fine. And, and I don't disagree that that's not like a concept of like, you know, external stimuli and how it impacts you and all that kind of stuff, sure. Although I think a big part of that is just the way of how you choose to receive that and how you choose to interpret that. But that aside, sure, there's defaults. But as an identity, we have such a tendency in our culture to have temperament identities. And so this is just who I am. Being true to me is I feel, I feel like I need to separate from you. I need a little space from you. I, I just don't have the energy to pour into this, this, this relationship. And so what do I do? I isolate. I step away thinking, well, I'm being true to myself. It's like, no, you need to push past yourself. Guess what? The kingdom of God is all about pushing past your temperaments. But, but pushing past that because actually the thing that you most need, meaningful connection, is going to be pushed, is forced by actually pushing into sacrifice for one another, to leaning into one another. One, another study connected loneliness to one of the greatest issues. It, it heightens pain, Suppressed immune systems, diminished brain function. You have a 26% higher chance of dying any given year if you feel a sense of loneliness. And we feel this anxiety in our culture. We feel this depression. We feel, and I'm not saying it's all this. I'm not trying to oversimplify. But certainly one aspect is we are more isolated. We went through COVID and everybody just isolated for a long time. And so we just don't know how to connect anymore. Not that we were very good at it begin with and we come out of that and we're just like I feel overwhelmed by you sure because you don't know how to talk to people but all of a sudden you do and you feel overwhelmed sure because you haven't worked that muscle but to step away from that and say no that's just not me that's just not who I am that's that's the most important thing for your health and happiness the most true thing about the Trinity you never find Jesus being like God I just need some alone time from you. Alright. I'll, I'll get back to you. We'll, we'll hang, but just I just need some me time. I haven't had my four hours of Netflix today. You know, I, need to, I just need a little unwind time. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to overharp hop on anything that's like too, like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I'm not trying to oversimplify. There's a lot of complex things going on. But, but if if we just have this default that, that's like, hey, sometimes we say the, the first way away, first step away from God is to say to my brother, I don't need you. And when too often our culture says, yeah, I don't need anybody else. They're too much of the thing that hurts me, too much of the thing that offends me, too much of the thing that wounds me. I'd rather just step away. And for the moment, it does. It feels okay. It keeps us safe. But but they have found that, that that isolation, I mean, it's even just biological. Isolation heightens your sense of like overstimulation. It's actually not people that overstimulates you unless you're dealing with performance-based identities that creates that more. Actually, it's the isolation that creates heightened 
a stimulation because your instinct is for survival. If you're by yourself out in the woods, you have to pay attention to everything. If you're in the family units, then you don't have to stress about everything. But every sound, every, you know, I mean, my wife, if she, if I'm away for a week, she's like locking the door whenever I'm not there. When I'm there, she doesn't care. It's like, it'll be fine. Why? Because there's something in her that's just instinctively is like, okay, what was that? <laughs> Why? It's isolation that, that stimulates us, overstimulates us too often. All right. That's why we talk about honor. Why honor is such a big thing. Because it's not just the connection. I get it. In our culture, we just, we just don't always know how to, how to do this well. And so community is exhausting. I'm not pretending like it's not. I get that. I get through, I mean, I'm 40-year-olds that hangs out with 18-year-olds all the time. Like, you, you know, you guys want to go, you know, Andrew wants to take his guys rock climbing on the side of Mount LSC. And I'm just like, I'm too old for this, man. You guys have fun. Like, I get it. But at the same time, I need that. I need you. I need that connection. I need that friendship because there is nothing more depressing than you feel that isolation, that loneliness. And so we speak honor because we're looking to actually create meaningful connection, not just connection. And so when we talk about honor, it's so critical Sometimes we say the, our thoughts leads to our actions that lead to our habits that lead to character that leads to our destiny. But what are your thoughts about each other? Are your thoughts, dude, this is what's so annoying about you. This is what's so frustrating about you. Or am I thinking, oh, this is what's so cool about you. This is what so, I'm so grateful about. And when we say those things, it helps solidify those things. And when we talk about honor, what we're talking about is just speaking that identity over the other person, speaking that truth over. Say, dude, I see the way that you are in trying to serve your roommates. I'm just, I respect that. I see the way that you're getting up in the morning to pray. Man, it's tough for me to do that. I'm really, I really respect that. When you speak those identity things, those kingdom-oriented identities, it forges something in us as well as in them. But you have to be, you have to be wise. What do you honor? You honor each other. You honor the other guys or girls in your small group. You honor your leaders. You honor the ministry. Because in any given time, I guarantee you, you can choose things that are honestly dishonoring because we're all fallible. We're all flawed. We all screw up on a regular enough basis. But honor is something that we have to lean into. We have to choose. The opposite is, of honor is gossip. Because gossip is to say, I'm going to elevate myself at your expense by highlighting your failings. Honor sucks to us because it's saying, I am choosing to step low to raise you high. And that feels contrary to my feeling of self. But when I lower myself by lifting someone else up, I let God have space. As John the Baptist would say, I become small so that he may become great. My loneliness lets him step in and fill that need within me. All right, commitment. The Christian says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous Christian Lutheran pastor during World War II, died basically at the hands of, well, Hitler's command. But he says this in Life Together. He says the Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. 
The burden of man was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ, but he bore them as a mother carries her child. As a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that he has been found. God took men upon himself and they weighed him to the ground. But God remained with them and they with God. In bearing with men, God maintained fellowship with them. It was the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross. And Christians must share in this law. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that until it sucks, until it's tough, until there's a sense of like sacrifice, there is not commitment. Commitment comes not when it's convenient, but when it stops being convenient. And there's too often this sense of a lack of commitment in our culture. I, I was watching, I saw some uh, post on Instagram or somewhere this last week, and, and it was kind of making this comment about uh, millennials gen versus Gen Zers and the FOMO uh, between the generations. In my generation, more with the millennial thing, they were like, millennials, they always had FOMO of if they didn't participate, if they weren't there, what they missed out on. Gen Zers are, if I do go, if I do participate, what other things could I have done that I missed out on? And, and so I was, I was actually talking with one of the new staffers at Salt Company here recently, and he just kind of made a comment. He was moving here from Nebraska, I think, and he just kind of made the comment. It's like, what's the deal with Colorado people? He's like, we can get them to like one event, but he's like, I'm used to thinking like if you connect to the community, you just you just kind of start getting part of the rhythm of the community. And Eric Sanquist calls it the events-based community here in Colorado, but it's, it's, I'm like, he's like, you can get them to like one thing, but they won't go to anything else after that. I'm like, yeah, because it's not, hey, I'm connecting and I'm choosing to commit to a community. It's like, oh, I'll come to Outpost, but I won't go do a small group, that's not my thing. Or I'll come to a small group, but I don't want to do anything outside of that weekly meeting, so no, I'm not interested in the weekend hangout because you're not doing anything that fun to me. Or I'll come to the weekend hangouts, but I don't want to have anything to do with that religious stuff outside of that. Just, you know, let's just do that. And it's, and it's the event-based connection. It's like as long as what you're doing is interesting to me, I'll do it, but I won't connect to you because what, we're, not, we're not connecting to each other. We're not interested in being committed to one another. But there's always the sense of commitment in connection with community. I remember Brent Kaiser one time, one of, one of my really core staff guys for, for the last, you know, up until just recently, if, if I had uh, had an unfortunate end to my life, he probably would be the guy that would have taken over the ministry. But, but just such a core guy. But... I remember when we first met him, when we pioneered the ministry, he was, he was the student and he lived in the dorms and he would watch people walk by with, through his like people, thinking, what are they up to? Wondering what they were doing, but too proud to actually say, I would like to spend time with somebody. Too proud to actually articulate the need in his heart for connection. And so he was always just isolating himself as a result. We met him. Well, had nothing to do with God, but through the community began to soften his heart to Jesus, gave his life to God, and through all of that, became one of the greatest, like, dude, most humblest people I ever knew, one of the greatest pursuers of relationship with people. And in every situation, he was getting out the door and saying, hey, let's spend time together. I want to know you. That's what Jesus did in his life.
it got him out of his shell. It got him out of his comfort zone because he found his true peace in the Lord. So as we close up here, I'm just, I'll stop rambling. We'll have the worship team come up here and we'll do one more song. But we have a little time to talk with each other here for a few minutes tonight. But, you know, we're kind of in an interesting moment here. This semester is especially interesting. I mentioned that to those of you who were with us last week in my place. But, but in many ways, we're kind of re-pioneering the ministry. Not the ministry, but we're re-pioneering the culture of our community. We, in a recent past, had one of the, honestly, we had one of the largest staff teams in the country for Kyle. There's about 250 Kyle's in the country. We had one of the largest staff teams. But that was never our goal. That was never the idea that we wanted. And so we eventually were able to send them out. In the last four years, we had about 40 staff that all went off to go pioneer these different places all over the country, all over the world, a lot of them here in Colorado. And, and as excited as we are for that, as celebratory as we've been towards that, there is a cost for us. All of those, the best ministers, the best conviction creators, the best, you know, people who honored the most, people who are the most vulnerable, the ones who kind of set that tone, we just sent away to go pioneer other places. And so the beauty of it is it, it forces people who wouldn't have to step up and model that, lead in that, fight for the community. You know, Chad will do that, or Brent will do that, or Ileana will do that. Like, they'll fight for the community. They'll They'll bring people, they'll, you know, gather, like, meaningful connections with one another. They'll help with that. I'll just kind of sit back and coast on their coattails. They're not here. And it lets us, it lets those of us here, is we're kind of re-pioneering the culture. Like, okay, what are we going to be about? What are we going to be focused on? Are we going to let that vulnerability slip? Are we going to let that honor go by the wayside? Are we going to be a community who fights for one another and fights for our community? So as we're starting this semester, some people here probably do, and you're here, great. There's a lot of great ministries. We say just find one, connect with one, find somewhere where you can do life together with people and, and begin to grow in your responsibility for God and his kingdom and go there, fight for it. And if that's with us, we would love that. We're going to be a community that's learning to fight for one another by honoring the things that are of God in one another of our community. And through that, the Sikh kingdom of God would grow on our campus because Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. Not your love for me. That will become intuitive to them through it, but by your love for one another. So true love requires a commitment the connection and an intentionality that comes and a choice to fight for it. Always stand. You guys are in the easiest time in your life to ever learn how to do this. You got, you're doing life with people. You're choosing your roommates. You're living out your major with different people. Like Learning to make these connections are so critical because this is the thing that is going to dictate the future of your life in many ways, the impact of how healthy you are because you are being invited into a relationship with a God who is himself relational. So may we be a people this semester who know what it's like to love God because we're learning together how to love one another well. Amen? Amen. Lord, you are 
absence, my destiny without you, eternity not knowing you from life today and someday. Today, God, today you are my God. Today you are my King. Today I love you. Help me to love you more. other. Sometimes it's easy to recognize our need for you and hard to remember our need for one another. God, help us to press through past the temperaments, past the defaults, past our experiences, even past the wounds and the hurts that scare us from stepping out. But God, help us to recognize what it's like to express your command to us, your calling, your manifesto to your community, to the church over these last 2,000 years, that we would be one as you are one. And may we be people who lift each other up in the way that you lifted up the Father through loving one another help us to learn what it's like to love you because I don't think we can do it without first recognizing that need for you. Lord, I don't think you ever meant for us to know what it's like to draw near to you without that love for one another. God, help us. Thank you that you're there. But we need you. We give this to you. We give us community. We give you relationships. We give you the semester and all those things. We say, God, we surrender. We love you.